Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noll, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Hey, welcome, everybody. Today, I am pleased to have Jacqueline Wales on the show. And let me tell you a little bit about her. Jacqueline has devoted the last 17 years of her life to helping women develop greater confidence and belief in their capabilities, take ownership and authority in their roles so they can feel empowered and capable of achieving more than they thought possible. She's the author of The Fearless Factor and The Fearless Factor at Work and the creator of Transformational Strategies for Success, an online deeply immersive self-development program supported by coaching. And she can be found at JacquelineWeld.com. Jacqueline Dot com. The phone always rings when I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> Jacqueline, welcome to the show. <laughs> it's nice to be here, Doug. Thank you. Yeah, there's always some kind of, it's either dog barking or the phone ringing or whatever. Yeah, I got I got the dog in the house, so <laughs> so she's fine. But but people just don't can't tell on the telephone, you know? I mean, I wish I, I could put a little on-air <laughs> sign on the phone. <laughs> you just reminded me, am I on silent or not? Yeah. And the answer was not, so thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you do. So I'm often asked, you know, why fear? Because, you know, fear fascinates me as an emotion because there's so much involved in what the fear is. And of course, I grew up in a background where fear was very real. And I grew up with a family that was alcoholic, alcoholic, violent, you name it. I got the whole nine yards thrown at me at a very early age. And so I had to do my own journey to figure out how to really address my own fear and insecurity. And I like to say that everything I teach, everything I write, everything I'm all about is because I've made the journey myself. And I'm not shy about my age. I'm now in my seventh decade. And I think I've got a great deal of wisdom to share about what I've learned over these seven decades. But the point being is that I came to fear simply because there was so much of it that I had to overcome for my own health and well-being. And not only that, it was about my family. I've got four children in my family now, and I wanted them to have a healthy upbringing. So I, I put enough effort into it that I've changed the entire family dynamics in one generation. And that really became the impetus for the work that I started 17 years ago when someone who was a coach said to me, you'd be really good in the coaching business. And I was like, really? I've made music. I've written books. I've traveled the world. I've raised my family, but nah, I never had a really conventional life, you know. And she said, well, you've got it all. So you might as well write about it and coach on it. And what I discovered was that I've been given advice. I've been giving advice my entire life. And then when she said, well, you can get paid for it, I said, oh, well, that's a nice idea. Let's do that. <laughs> so what's your typical clientele? So my typical clientele tends to be from many different industries, but they're all high achievers. Mm -hmm. I've worked with academics, with scientists, with, with legal people, with, with tech people. It makes no difference. What's the key element for all of these women? Self-doubt. Self-doubt, number one. And then the second part is, 
how do we help them to raise themselves up to take greater ownership and authority in the roles they inhabit? And a lot of it is believing in your own self. How is it that how is it that men and women can be brilliant? They can go to school and be extraordinarily well educated and trained and do brilliant work in their chosen careers and yet still have deep, such deep self-doubt that it paralyzes them deep inside. Well, of course, which they never let anybody see. Yeah. Well, how, is think, it, how is it? How does that happen? I think it gets embedded at an early age, frankly. Yeah. And when I talk about this, when I talk about fear and being fearless, I like to say that being fearless is not the absence of fear, but the courage to take the next step. But when we look at fear or fear-based thinking and behaviors, a lot of it is tied into I'm not good enough. Talk to a perfectionist. What are they all about? I have to keep proving myself over and over again. Nothing's ever quite good enough. Talk to somebody who's highly competitive. You'll find the same thing. You know, some, talk to somebody who needs to be right all the time. It's the same thing. It's all about I'm not good enough. Yeah. And on the flip side of that also is, I'm not lovable. I won't be approved of. And so you go out of your way to seek the approval and get validation for your existence. And for women, especially sitting there waiting for somebody to notice them is like the worst thing possible. And I did over 80 interviews for a new book I'm working on right now. And they were all high achieving women. And first question was, where has fear limited your opportunity? And what I got back was, and it was repeated a lot, not speaking up, not making decisions for myself, allowing other people to take control. You know, these are fundamental issues, but behind it all, that self-doubt that I'm not good enough piece is loud and clear. I know that I suffered from that for a long time uh, until I got out of the practice of law. <laughs> I mean, I, I was a civil trial lawyer for 22 years before I went back to school and got my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And I would say that I probably wasn't until my 60s that I got got over all of that. It took a long time. It was a lot of work. Yeah, it is hard work. And that's why if you look at the percentages of people who are willing to show up and make these changes, these mm -hmm. really fundamental life changes, it's a very small percentage. I mean, if you ask somebody the question, who are you? You'll get the labels. You'll get who they think right. they are based on someone else's identity piece you know like you being a lawyer that's a label you know yeah. so we we have to be mindful of what are the labels that other people have placed on us and that we have accepted as the reality of our existence as opposed to questioning who are you who are you really and when right. we talk about authenticity i'm a little bit leery on that word these days but it, there's definitely that piece of finding the uniqueness of you not what was planted earlier and that insecurity that you're talking about that came about from authority figures from parents bosses schools you name it yeah and i had a i was born with a lot of disabilities yeah and back in back i'm your age i'm 72 uh back in those days born left-handed partially deaf almost blind two club feet couldn't walk until i was three and parents who loved me but didn't know how to support me emotionally just said, buck it up, kid. Make it happen. Yeah, yeah. It was tough. 
Yeah. And what, what it does is I'm, I look back on it now and I go, the resilience that was started at a very early age has turned into an extraordinary strength to know that you can overcome almost anything. This is true. <laughs> and, and you do. And, and that's another piece that, that people miss is that if we are really aware that the experiences we've gone through are strengthening us as human beings, you know, we talk about building character but beyond the building of character is like the fear piece is that I won't be able to handle whatever it is that comes my way. When in fact, your past experiences have prepared you for anything. That's right. I completely agree with that. And, and it's that, although I had a really miserable first 50 years of my life, well, I won't say it was really miserable. I had a lot of fun along the way, but, Inside, I was a, I was a pretty much a mess. Uh, that that overcoming all of that was tough, but worthwhile. And would I change anything? I wouldn't change it if it meant that I had to be different than who I am today. I'm with you 100% on that. I mean, and I know how long it took me to have the courage to stand up and be fully in my own power, in my own sense of self, and not be in that place of needing other people's validation all the time. I've got right. notes I needed a lot of that growing up and certainly right up into my fifties. When I first started this gig, I'll tell you, I knew nothing about nothing. You know, <laughs> I was like, I knew about life. I've lived plenty of life, but I, you know, working with people, helping, advising people on a professional level, there was a lot of learning to do to, to really yeah. be comfortable with that. Uh, and now, of course, you know, 17, 18 years later, I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I know what it's all about. I do it. I'm comfortable doing it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you how do you help your clients start on this journey of becoming fearless and overcoming their own self-doubts? You gotta listen to the stories. Well, there we go. <laughs> you gotta listen to the stories. And because I know a lot of these stories, I either lived them or I've had enough work with other people to know these stories. You can certainly pick out what's going on as the undercurrent of what the issues really are about. So if I say to somebody, do you feel like you're not good enough? And they'll go, yeah, well, yeah, kind of. Okay. Do you believe that to be true? Well, no, not really. Okay. So where's the gap? Let's listen for the gap. Let's find out what are the stories that you tell yourself? that have become the means by which you live your mm, life. Interesting. And how do people do under your, under your tutelage? Amazingly well, actually. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, I created transformational strategies for success out of work that I had created many years ago. Mm -hmm. And last year I got together with an instructional designer who's an organizational psychologist. And she took all of that content and questions and everything else that had been part of a analog type program and we we created this online program and the people who've gone through it in the last year it's off the charts doug i am just wow. astounded i mean people are writing to me going you've changed my life and i'm like i only asked a few questions yeah you're pretty excited too and it is exciting yeah. there's no question about it you know, it's you like, know and and yeah. it's also very gratifying when you get those emails. Absolutely. You're like, okay, I'm helping people and that's making my life meaningful too. 
Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I know it's similar for you. I get up every day and I would get up at three in the morning and, and sit on the phone with somebody who needed my, my input on something. Uh, you know, one of the things I like to say is I don't call myself a coach anymore. I'm a guide and a trusted advisor. Right. That's really what I do is you guide people to where they want to go. I think that's a really a better metaphor and better description. I mean, that's the work when I'm when I'm doing mediations and I'm helping people resolve conflict or I'm I'm working in difficult conversations. You know, I tell people, look, I'm the Sherpa. I'm not going to carry your backpack for you, but I'll show you how to get to the top of the mountain. And I know where the bears are and I know where the trails washed out. <laughs> I know where the danger spots are, um, but you're going to have to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. It's a bit like being that Swiss guide. You that's know? right. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, that's a metaphor that I look at. You know, mm -hmm. I remember one time being in the Canadian Rockies with a Swiss guide going on these amazing hiking trails. It was summertime. There wasn't a whole lot of snow, but uh, there, there's that, that piece of we're guiding people to go where they want to go. Right, so exactly. maybe, maybe they don't even know they want to go there. But yeah, that, that's so, right. And, and, and really it's there. We're not here to tell them where to go. No, we're here to have them choose where they think they want to go, guide them. And then if they change their minds along the way, then we just adjust accordingly. That's right. That's right. How many people come to you and go, I don't know where I want to go. I don't know what I want. That happens all the time. All the time. Yeah. All the time. So let's, let's start with that point and then we'll build from there. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I tell people, well, you pick pick any point. I mean, not having a goal or a direction to go in is like it's like being in a sailboat without a compass. You blow with in whatever direction the wind blows you. Yeah. But if you got a compass, you can set a heading and then set the sail according to the wind, and you can you can go directly to your goal. And the beauty of it is, once you set a goal, it doesn't mean you're locked into it. You can go to a different compass heading if you want. You can even go almost directly into the wind and still manage to make progress. Yeah, but the, you know the number of people, as we well know, who are absolutely in that sailboat and they have no, no idea compass. how to read the stars, no compass, no right. nothing. They're just and they're just floating along. And and what's amazing is how many really successful people are in that category. People yeah. that you would think, you know, they're at vice president or executive vice president levels, and they may maybe bringing down three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year, and they're in that place. It's kind I of remarkable. It's kind um, of remarkable. The other side of that is they don't take the time to do the kind of deep digging around that you and I have done. Yeah. So they they'll use I don't have time. I'm I you know it's not really important. Blah blah blah. We can get all kinds of excuses for it. But the kind of work that you and I have done and do with our clients, there's not a whole lot of percentages on that in terms of people who are engaging to that level. Right. That I think I, my experience has been, because I work with emotions a lot, is that people are really afraid of confronting emotions mm -hmm. because they've never felt emotionally safe before. And until they can experience emotional safety, it's really hard for them to get their heads around the idea that, hey, we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Maybe we should devote some time to developing our emotional competencies. Yes. Yeah. And and that's a lot of what, you know, I've worked a lot with middle level managers mm -hmm. and it's it's the piece that needs to be addressed over and over again is that emotional intelligence 
and helping them to understand their own emotions and right. their own self-awareness, which is is key to how they can help the people that they're they are direct reports or even those that are above them. Right. Those conversations. Right. I mean, you lead in four directions, right? You lead up, you lead down, you lead sideways, and you lead inside yourself. Yeah. And you've got to be able to do all four dimensions. Tell me about the role of empathy in your work. I think it's critical. It's critical. And I, because of my own past experiences, there are very few things that that will be presented to me that I cannot relate to. And I will find <laughs> a story to share around that too. Right. So I build a lot of empathy with my clients because, you know, no matter what they're going through, I'll go, oh yeah, let me tell you about and that shared story piece, as you well know, mm-hmm. is a real glue when it comes to building empathy and helping other people build their empathy as well. So I would say it's critical. Yeah, I I, I'm, I'm, I teach leadership empathy um, because I think it's a I think it's one of the foundational skills of of leadership. I think what happens is that people rise through the ranks of their organizations through technical skills. And then they get to the top and they all of a sudden realize that it's no longer technical. I'm not doing, I'm not making things anymore. I'm not doing things. I'm not coding. I'm not selling stuff. I'm leading other people. And that means I need to relate to them at a very deep level and have them trust me. And, you know, and that requires empathy, leadership empathy, which I think is, it's maligned a lot. I mean, people see empathy as being something very weak when in fact it's, really foundational i think it's changing i think they're beginning to get it at this point when you look at their levels of exhaustion and disconnection at work and disengagement at work and the number of people who are not people focused but here's my point i like to make and which is why my transformational program is all about or what it's about self-awareness number one for that leader I have to get you tuned into who you are, number one, and and learn self-compassion because out of self-compassion comes empathy also. So I have to get you to the point where, you know, this perfectionist nature in you because you're all high achievers, so you all overdo it. You know, I know it, I do it. But the point being is that if I can get you to understand self-compassion as a piece of self-awareness, then you're more likely to have compassion for someone else which again speaks to the empathy piece. How do you how do you get people to move into a place for, of self-compassion especially when they're they've been brought up under the Protestant ethic where I've got to work harder than everybody else or I'm I'm a slacker. It's very hard. There's no question about it. I worked with one client for 2 years to help him understand that he didn't have to take a two two by four to the side of his head every time he stepped out of line according to his rules. Right. And that if he didn't do something perfectly, there was a way to speak softly about tomorrow you can do better. And so it was a process of just continuing to reinforce that message over time. You can't wave a magic wand on this stuff. If you've spent a lifetime beating yourself up because you've got this internal dialogue about how wrong you are, how stupid you are, how blah, 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 that nobody else gets to hear, as you well know. Right. But you know, that self-judgment piece needs to be countered with the compassion piece. And you know, I I'm not a Buddhist, but I definitely believe in Buddhist philosophy. And you know, all life is suffering. 
how do we how do we mitigate that and a lot of it is just through that self-compassion which in turn is compassion for others i mean how many times do you watch something on the news that's heartbreaking and it brings tears to your eyes that's empathy that's right so i teach uh, a unique set of skills um i teach people how to listen to emotions rather than to words in fact i say ignore the words and pay pay attention only to the emotions when you need to when you need to, to practice empathy. And the the experience that I've seen over the last twenty years is that when people learn how to do this, they automatically develop compassion because what they see in other people they see people now as emotional, not irrational. They see them as having an emotional experience. They know exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it. They know how to calm down angry people. They no longer have fights and arguments in their lives. And over a course of six to eight weeks of practicing and, and really dialing this in, they all of a sudden start seeing emotional people as people they can be concerned with. And that's the compassion part. And then what happens, this is the magic. They turn it on themselves. And they start recognizing their own emotions they start labeling their own emotions and they automatically start feeling compassionate towards themselves. Oh, I'm just having an emotional moment. Now, this isn't defining who I am. Yeah, I'm pissed off. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm whatever. But okay, so I am. <laughs> so what? <laughs> I'm okay. So it's the old thing of don't take yourself too seriously, <laughs> you know. Or or you know, acknowledge. I think that the what I've learned is acknowledge your emotions. Yes. And and deeply acknowledge your emotions. Don't run from them. Don't hide from them. Don't repress them. Don't suppress them. Don't deny them. Acknowledge I'm angry. I'm frustrated or I'm in deep grief right now. And just accept that's just what you're experiencing and it will pass. It will pass. So here's a question for you. How do you deal with something like shame and vulnerability? Because vulnerability is a big piece of that acknowledging one's emotions. It and takes time. Hard. Yeah. The way I do that is with all my students. My, my clients, is I say, you're going to start in a really low risk social situation where there is no risk of embarrassment or failure. My favorite laboratory is Starbucks, right? So I instruct my clients, I say something like this. Okay, so you're going to go into Starbucks or your coffee place of choice, your cafe of choice. And you're going to go up and you order your coffee and hand the credit card and give me your order. And then you're going to look at them and say, hey, man, you're if, assuming it's a man. Hey, you're really happy today. You look really excited. And that's all you're going to say. And then put your lab coat on, step back, and watch what happens. And just make a mental note. What did I just observe? And you're going to do this 10 times in the next week and a half, once a day. You're going to do it at Starbucks. You're going to do it at the checkout at the grocery store. You're going to do it when you go out to eat to a restaurant server. And you're just going to give them one emotion. You're going to reflect back one emotion that you think they're experiencing. And after you've done this 10 times, you start to see, you're going to see the same reactions every single time. And you'll start to see the predictability of this. And that will start to build the confidence. And you will not feel as vulnerable and as naked and as uh, out there because you're telling somebody what they're feeling. And your confidence will build. And, and within three or four weeks, it'll become habitual, three to five weeks. And that's how it works. And then after they got that down, they say, okay. And the, I got the sense that they're 
I can throw stuff at them and they can reflect back feelings and they're doing a pretty good job. I say, okay, now start doing it with your friends. And they start doing it with the friends for a week or two. Then I said, all right, now let's start doing it with your colleagues at work. And how does that go? And they get that figured out, dialed in. Then I teach them how to ethic label a group or listen to the emotions of a group. And they say, all right, you're ready to bring it home now. <laughs> and here's what you're going to do when you bring it home. Again, very gently and gracefully. And, and so you, you just slowly, the thing about vulnerability is, to your point, it's very scary. There's a lot of fear involved. So start out, keep it safe. And start off with really small projects where they can dip their little toe in the shallow end of the kiddies pool without any risk of, of doing any damage to themselves. Where I think we get into trouble teaching and training this stuff is we ask people to do too much too fast. And I think we've got to be more incremental about it. I love what you're saying. And I, I definitely could take a few lessons from you. Happy to, happy to help you out. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I love that, you know, because it is about the revealing of, of that internal life that we're talking about. And, and we're also overcoming all of this old childhood programming. You know, we're taught, you know this, we're taught all this crap as kids, which is okay for socializing. Because you got to socialize a two-year-old and a three-year-old. But by the time you're six or seven, those rules don't matter anymore. And by the time you're 12, those rules are totally irrelevant. And yet, we're never deprogrammed out of this pro out of what we learned as children. And we carry that forward as if this is the rule of life. And it's not. It's far more sophisticated and nuanced than what we teach a two-year-old or three-year-old. Yeah. I yeah. just wish, like I wish, I wish to God somebody had taken me at 12 years old and sat down and said, okay. You're 12 years old. You're going into puberty. This is what you're going to face. It's going to be really messy for the next six or seven years. And by the way, all those rules we taught you as, as children, you still want to remember them, but <laughs> there's a little bit more you need to know. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, you know, thinking about feelings and the safety of feelings, I was around about 26 or 27, and I was talking with somebody who was a psychologist at the time, and it was a casual conversation, but he, he probed and he got some responses. And then he said to me, what are you feeling? And I felt like a steel door came down. And I yep. was like, I don't feel anything. And he said, no, 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 you're feeling something. I was That's like, right. I ain't going to talk about it. Yeah. Well, so so to that point, my wife and I have a practice. Every morning we get up at sunrise and we go out and sit in our hot tub and watch the sun come up over the mountains. And the first question you ask me is, what are you feeling right now? And then I turn around and say, and what are you feeling? And we actually have to sort of plumb because you know, in the morning we're waking up and typically don't feel much, but it's there. Well, I feel I feel a little excited today. I'm feeling I'm a little tired. I feel or I feel I feel really rested and I'm excited and I'm kind of anxious. But and and teaches us to really pay attention to the nuances of our emotional experience in the moment. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I have to say, even for myself right now, I'm still going through changes, and it has to do with recognizing where the emotions are getting clogged in the system because That's we right. hold our emotions at a cellular level. We try to deal with it with our conscious mind, but the fact of the matter is, as you pointed out, it's the unconscious that's doing the work most of the time. That's which right. Way, we're like the iceberg, you know. That's right. And that's why that's why the reprogramming is so important. Right. Exactly. But no matter how old you get, you're still dealing with, you know. Oh, stuff. stop <laughs> growing, start dying. <laughs> exactly. Right? 
And I say, well, you know, you're not done until you're in the pine box going out the door. <laughs> That's exactly right. And even then, you're just moving to a higher plane and That's doing it. it's just another, another kind of change. What can I say? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I got one more question for you. This is the question I always like to ask my guests. If, if what's the one thing that we wouldn't know about you personally, Jacqueline, unless you revealed it to us? Not written, not not spoken about previously. Something just something that most people would never know about it about it unless you revealed it to them. I'm a professionally trained singer. Well, there you go. Really? Yes. And did you perform? I was a cantor for synagogues in Paris and Amsterdam for five oh my years. God. Wow. Most people don't know that. That's the kind of answer I want. Well, I happen to be a jazz and blues violinist. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, we've come to the end of the half hour. I think that's we 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 bounce this around enough. Thank you so much, Jacqueline Wales. Check her work out, everybody at jacquelinewales.com. Yeah, I got that right. Jacqueline Wales, jacquelinewales.com. There we go. Thank, Thank you, everybody. You so we'll see you next though. time. Thank yeah. you. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listening with leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.